If you've been with us the last few weeks, you may remember that we have taken a little extra time after Easter Sunday to think about the implications, to consider the, the implications that the Bible tells us for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave regarding our lives now. And last week, if you were here, you may remember I, I read a quote to you from a theology professor at Baylor University named David Larson. And the quote went something like this, Christians today, and those of us in the room who are followers of Christ, Christians today are the sons and daughters of a spiritual detonation that took place some 2,000 years ago, of which the reverberations are still being felt around the world today. Christians, those of us who are followers of Christ, we're sons and daughters of a spiritual detonation, kind of explosion, this demonstration of power that took place some 2,000 plus years ago on the first Resurrection Sunday and of which the reverberations, the expanding impact of that power is still being felt around the world today. We've taken our, our time over the last couple of weeks to consider the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is no mere event in history that you and I are supposed to, be, to remember and to catalog facts and knowledge about, but the incomparably great power of God that raised his son Jesus from the grave that day is a power that is at work in and towards those of us who believe. That same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead for those who believe is the same power that raised your sinful hearts to new life. And one of the things that we considered last week briefly, and I want to go back to as we, as we move forward this week and into another final really implication of the resurrection for us today, is simply this. If we were to, to all stand up and we had everybody line up around the room, we would not be able to distinguish with our eyes who in this room had the incomparably great power of God alive and at work within them. I mean, it seems like something so magnificent, something so grand, something as we saw last week that you can't even seem to get a word to describe. And we saw how Paul used different words, inexhaustible, indescribable. It would seem like the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that's alive and at work in those who believe, it'd be physically evident to everyone around. But it's not. The only way to see the resurrection power of God alive and at work in those who believe is by watching the way they live. That's what we saw last week. As we took time to consider the fact that this power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's actually at work towards you, we had to stop and take a step back and go, well, what's the power for? And we saw how the Apostle Paul constantly kept coming back to the churches that he served to remind them of what this power, this incomparably great power that was at work in them was for. It was so that they would live a life of service, that they might daily die to their own preferences and their own priorities, and that they might live a life of service to others, a life of endurance enduring hard things and, and patience and enduring hard people with all joy. 
that this incomparably great power of God that raised Jesus from the dead was alive and at work in you, that you might share in suffering for the sake of the gospel, but you might share in the sufferings of Christ. We have this resurrection power at work in us so that the life of Christ might be displayed through us so that as you and I who are followers of Christ, we answer the call of Jesus to follow him daily, to pick up our cross, to die to ourselves on a daily basis. The only way that any of that is at all possible is through the incomparably great power of God at work in us. And so it's evident and visible and on display to everyone around us through the life that we actually live. That's what Paul is trying to drive home to the churches. That's what this incomparably great power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you for. So that as you answer the call to follow Christ, day in and day out, as you carry your cross and follow Jesus, the beauty of the resurrected life is put on display to a watching world. We said last week there was one other implication of this resurrection power for followers of Christ that we still wanted to talk about. And if you were here last week, I told you what it was. I told you that it was coming. So it shouldn't be much of a surprise, but we have this incomparably great power of God at work towards us and at work in us that we might live a life of power in weakness. We have this incomparably great power of God alive and at work in us to be weak. There's something about that reality that our human heart just cannot latch on to. You've got your Bibles, open it up to the book of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul had a unique relationship with the churches that he loved and that he served. And we saw how in various letters that he wrote to the churches last week, he, he brought them back to the purpose of the power of God at work in them. We, we saw how he, he drew them back to these different things that the power was actually for. And it's no different with this particular church. And in fact, Paul had a, a really unique relationship with this church. And we know if you were to read the two letters that we have in the Bible that Paul wrote to this church, he actually wrote at least four letters to them. And that God actually, in his providence and kindness, uh, saved two of them for us. And we have them to hear what Paul had to say to them and to see what Paul has to say to us through them. And we know that this church was full of all kinds of problems. We know that this church was just shot through with sin. And do you know why this church had so many problems and was so shot through with sin? Because this church was made up of people. Because people were there. It's no different than any other church. Where people are present, sin is present. Where people are present, God is present as well. And Paul was constantly pointing their attention back to the reality of who God was for them, who God was in them, and what it meant to live a life in step with the gospel. And in the letter that Paul wrote that we have as 2 Corinthians, Paul picked up a different theme. He carried on with continuing to direct them back to the hope that was in them in the gospel, but there was something else happening in the life of this church that Paul needed to address. See, people had, had come into this fellowship and into this community of believers in Corinth and had begun trying to convince the people of this church that the gospel that they had heard Paul preach and the gospel that they had received from Paul was actually an insufficient message. It was an insufficient gospel. And their argument for the gospel's insufficiency was Paul's life itself. You see, there were standards that the world they lived in had set in place for what success and what power 
looked like, for what should be envied and what should be admired. And there was nothing about the Apostle Paul or his life that fit those standards. So people were coming to the church and saying, listen, this gospel, this message that he has preached, it's not a full message. It's not a sufficient message. Look at him. Look at his weakness. Look at his frailty. And Paul, out of love for this church and out of a fierce love and loyalty to the gospel, he wrote to this church and he began to deal with the arguments that people were making about the gospel and about his weakness. And I want us to hear what Paul has to say about that this morning and consider what it might mean for you and I even today. So if you've got 2 Corinthians open, I want you to get to chapter 4. And for the sake of time, we're going to pick it up in in verse 6. The Apostle Paul says this to the church in, in Corinth. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, taking them back to creation. When God in his all-sufficient power spoke and that which did not exist came into existence. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That indescribable power that spoke in the beginning and that which did not exist came into existence. It's the same power that raised his son Jesus from the dead. That power has shown into your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Paul's talking about the incomparably great power of God in the gospel. He's reminding them of the resurrection life that they live. That prior to God speaking light into their heart, they were dead in their sin. That apart from the grace of God speaking light into their heart, that they could see his incomparable glory in Jesus, they were still dead. But by his grace and by his power, he brought to them new life. And now by God's grace and God's power, they're alive to the reality of who God is for them in Christ. I imagine Paul took a singing break right there. Sometimes you get to writing some things and thinking about some things, and you just have to stop and start singing. And I imagine Paul was like that. I feel like that sometimes on Sunday, but I can't sing. So I spare you that. Sometimes you get so excited, you just can't. Maybe he got up and just paced around the room. But then Paul did what none of us ever want to have happen when we're given good news. Someone gives you good news, tells you something great, and it gives you an invitation to something you've been so excited to go to. Whenever good news comes, the last thing you want to hear from the person delivering the news to you is, but. And Paul says, God, in his incomparably great power, this, the same power that spoke and, and light shone into the darkness, he's demonstrated that same power in you by giving the light of his glory to your heart, bringing life where there was death, and you've now seen his grace and mercy to you in Jesus. But. Verse 7, but you have this treasure, this good news of God being for you in Christ, the thing we have been talking about for the last few weeks from Easter, God for you in Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, you are forgiven. The good news that you are made right, justified before God, that God has brought you, adopted you into his family. The good news, the treasure of God for you and not just God for you, but God at work in you. His resurrecting, creating power at work and alive in you to transform you. you. You have this treasure. But in an unexpected twist of picture, Paul says, but it's in jars of clay. You have this incomparably great treasure. But you're simply just a jar of clay. Now that would have 
meant something very specific to those who read this letter or ever heard Paul speak like this in his day. You see, in that world, jars of clay were the most insignificant pieces of stoneware you'd find in a house. They were reserved for the scraps from the kitchen. They were reserved for waste that would be taken out and put away. They would put them in these clay jars and and take them out. That's what the clay jars were for. And not only is that what they were actually for, clay jars were one of the only pieces of stoneware back in that day that you couldn't retool. You couldn't fix. Once they cracked in a way that they could no longer contain what was put in there, they were useless. They had to be thrown away. I mean, think about um, a Ziploc bag. All the things that it can hold, all the liquid, you can flip it upside. As soon as you tear that thing, you can't fix it. You can't reseal that tear and, and keep reusing it. You just have to throw it away. It becomes insignificant. That's what a jar of clay was in that culture. It was the most insignificant piece of of a vessel of stoneware you'd find in someone's home. And Paul just says, we have this incomparably great treasure, this power of God and this grace of God. But but unexpectedly, we have it in jars of clay. It doesn't quite seem like the appropriate container for a treasure like this, does it? But that's precisely the point that Paul's trying to make. We have this treasure, but we have it in in jars of clay, and there's a reason. Look at what Paul says in the rest of verse 7. The reason is to show that this all-surpassing power, again, he can't find a word for it, incomparably great, all-surpassing power, it belongs to God and not to us. You see, the all-surpassing, incomparably great power of God is at work towards you and in you that He might display, that He might reflect, that He might magnify His incomparably great power through your weakness. Through your weakness. See, the point of being jars of clay is that it's through the weakness, through the insufficiency that God has chosen to make His power, His grace, His mercy, His incomparably great, all-sufficient power known to a watching world. The problem with this and the thing that we've got to address and the reason Paul brings it up and Paul's going to bring it up throughout the entire letter, he's not going to stop here. The problem with this is that our sinful hearts don't like being referred to as jars of clay. Our sinful, arrogant hearts would much prefer to be seen as beautiful Roman or Grecian vases or urns that are flawless, shining, beautifully decorated, and set upon the most prominent shelf in the home for everybody who walks in to envy, for everyone who walks in to admire, We don't like flaws being exposed. We don't like weakness being seen. We like being envied. We like being admired. And because of that, you and I like to hide our weaknesses. Remember, Paul's writing to the church. You got to listen to this for for yourself. You got to listen to this for us. Paul's writing to the church. Those who have tasted of the grace and mercy of God, those who who know of the power of God at work in them, we still, in our own sinfulness, don't like weakness. We prefer to be seen as beautiful, shiny vessels, perfect parents. 
the perfect family, the enviable employee, the perfect friend, any flaw or crack in the vessel, we, we prefer to find a way to fill, to paint over, to gloss over, or at least put on the shelf in such a way that no one who walks in can actually see it. We like to look the way we would like to be rather than who we really are. And what Paul's trying to communicate here, what he's going to go to such pain to try to communicate in all of this is that when we refuse to allow the all-surpassing power and glory and grace of God to shine through us in our weakness, when we take all of our time to try to fill in the cracks and, and hide the weakness, cover over it so that people can't see it, when we try to present a different version of ourselves than we really are, what we're actually doing is proclaiming a gospel of us. We're drawing people's attention to ourselves. What we're actually saying is that the work of God is about making us look impressive. If we can just get ourselves to look a particular way that the world around us values and envies, if we could be this particular person, this beautiful vase that we can put on the shelf and everybody can come in and see, here's how we even twist it in the church. We say, if we can just do that and present that, then we'll have the chance to tell people about Jesus. I mean, if we can just make ourselves enviable and admirable to the world around us, then they'll actually listen to us. But until then, we don't really have any credibility with them, do we? So we need to take that weakness and we need to turn it around so that no one can see it. We need to find a way to fill that crack in. I need to find a better paint to, to, to cover over this thing. Instead of allowing the all-sufficient power and grace of God to be put on display through our weakness that others might see his mercy and see his grace and see his power alive and at work through us. What we do is what one of my favorite pastors out in California, Richard Kaufman says, we end up crushing people by the weight of a good example. That's what happens with Pharisees. That's what happens with the church who, who cannot own weakness. That's what happens with the follower of Christ who would prefer to hide weakness and cover over weakness and try to keep weakness hidden away and present themselves as something other than they truly are. They end up crushing people by the good example they're putting out there because it's through the weakness. It's through the insufficiency. It's through the cracks and the chips and the jar of clay that God has purposed that his all-surpassing mercy and grace be made known to a watching world. See, the Christian life is, is not just a life of victory and power. The resurrecting power of God is alive and at work in you, but it's not a life just of victory and power, but it's also not just a life of weakness. What Paul is at pains for the church to understand is that the resurrection life, the life of a follower of Christ, is a life of power in weakness. It's a life where the all-sufficient grace of God is made known through the weakness of his people. See, what God wants is for his grace and his mercy and his power to be made known through our cracks. When you and I try to hide them and cover over them and gloss over them and, and put them somewhere that people can't see, we make the point of the gospel about what we look like. We make it about us. And the point that Paul is trying to make is that it's not about the jar. It's not about us. 
probably the all-sufficient grace, mercy, and power of God being made known through us. See, God will show himself off to a watching world. And I want you to listen to this. He will show himself off to a watching world when jars of clay, when you and I, increasingly value the treasure that's within us over and against the jar itself. See, you and I, we, we, we tend to put our value in the appearance of the jar. What's it look like? How's it being perceived? This is what the world we live in says is enviable and admirable and desirable. And if I can just make myself look like this, you know what? This is what the church says I'm supposed to look like. And this is what that culture says I'm supposed to look like. When jars of clay increasingly treasure and value and delight in what's inside rather than in the jar himself, God shows himself off to a watching world. And what Paul is trying to communicate to the church, to to you and I, even today, is that human weakness is no barrier to God's purposes. We don't believe this. Listen, even church culture, take it out of the individual. I'll put it it in in, in my world as, as a pastor. We struggle to believe this. Weakness is no barrier to God's purposes. Man, but if we could just get more comfortable chairs, if we could just get our communication better. The world says there has to be this kind of presence out there for people to be able to connect with on the computer and there's got to be these things that they can go and read and and if we could display the fact that some of us maybe have but we actually don't, graduate degrees over here, if we get all these things straight, then the world will listen. Then we'll have a platform to say something. And what Paul is trying to make known to this church who is beginning to believe that lie, and because they're beginning to believe that lie, they're beginning to believe that the gospel is actually insufficient for them. Paul's saying, listen, human weakness is no barrier to God's purposes. Sam Storms, he's a, he's a pastor in Oklahoma. I, I admire him greatly. He, he's writing about human weakness. I want you to hear what he says. He says, the world thinks in terms of human ability and accomplishment. See, Paul isn't going to define what weakness is for us in this letter. He's going to point to varied aspects of it that people were accusing him of, but he's not going to define it. It's kind of a general term. And so Sam Storm says, the world thinks in terms of human ability and accomplishment. So if you think about what the world values when it comes to ability and accomplishment, and then think about whatever the opposite of that is, that's weakness. And think about what the world that we live in values when it comes to ability and accomplishment. What it says is admirable and enviable. What it said should be desirable. The opposite of those things in our world would be weakness. So Storm says the world thinks in terms of human ability and accomplishment. But for the Christian, it's our weakness which lays us open to experience the all-sufficiency of God's grace. Just think about that for a second. It's actually our weakness It's our lack of all those things that the world says are enviable and admirable. All those things that measure us based on ability or accomplishment. He says it's actually in our weakness that we're laid open, that we might actually experience the all-sufficiency of God's grace and power. 
Thus, here's the impact he says, thus, we are actually able to rejoice because of our weakness. Not in it, although we can do that, but because of it. Because of that weakness. Because that is the thing that lays me open to experience the all-sufficient nature of God's grace and power and through which God has purposed to put himself on display to a watching world. It's that that we have the privilege as followers of Jesus to rejoice because of. In fact, Paul knows that this is so hard for the human heart to grab a hold of. It's, it's, so, it's so contrary to our sinful nature that he's not done talking about it. He's going to talk about it throughout the entirety of this letter. Let me just show you two more places he talks about it as he's building his argument for the church and, and then see what kind of implications it has for us. You can write this down. You don't have to go there right now. But in chapter 11, he picks this thing back up again. And in chapter 11, verse 30, Paul actually says this, If I must boast... If I'm going to have to boast about something, if I'm going to have to talk about something like this, I'm going to boast of the things that show my weakness. That's what I'm going to boast about. In chapter 11, Paul specifically lays out those things that others were using against him to show how weak he was. And Paul says, you know what? You're exactly right. And it's in those things that I'm going to boast because it's in those weaknesses that I'm most laid open to experience the all-sufficient nature of God's grace and power. Chapter 11, Paul talks about greater labors and far more imprisonments than others, countless beatings, near-death experiences, being beaten with rods, being stoned and suffering shipwreck and in constant danger from thieves, both Jew and Gentile, not to mention what I encountered while on the sea or in the wilderness. And then there were times of toil and hardship and sleepless nights and even hunger and thirst and exposure. And to a world that Paul lived in, the world that valued what it valued in that day, they looked at Paul and said, that doesn't seem very successful or strong to me. I mean, how, how could this almighty God that you have proclaimed, this God of all incomparably great power that you talk about, be with you when that kind of stuff keeps happening? Surely, if the God that you talk about is really with you, he would keep you from suffering those kinds of things. Surely, if he's got this all-surpassing greatness and power that you keep talking about, your life would be a life of prosperity. This gospel that Paul's preaching to you, it's insufficient. Look at him. Paul says, listen, if I'm going to boast, if I'm going to make much of anything, I'm actually going to make much of what makes me seem weak. The point that Paul's trying to make for the church is simply this. You may not seem extraordinary in the eyes of the world that you live in. But God is. In the eyes of the world that you live in, what, what's considered enviable, what's considered successful, what's considered strong, in the world that you live in, you, you may not be seen as extraordinary. But make no mistake, God, God is. And so he picks it up in chapter 12. And Paul says in verse 5, again, when it comes to me, as for me, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. If I'm going to boast, I'm only going to boast in that very thing 
that makes me seem weak. Listen to what he says. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. That's a sermon in itself right there. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I've experienced such things by the grace and mercy of God. Remember Paul, Paul on his way to persecute the church, knocked off his donkey and blinded with the resurrected Christ right there talking to him. Paul has experienced things with the grace and mercy of God that, that no one else has experienced. And he said, if I had a reason to boast, if anybody had a reason to boast, it'd be me. And it would be okay. But I'm not going to. If I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. And so to keep me from being conceited, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And I want you to listen to this. Verse 9, but God said to me, perfect tense. Do you know what the perfect tense means? Perfect tense means what God just said to me then continues to be true even now. That's what the perfect tense means. But God said to me then, when I was pleading with him to remove this thing, when I was agonizing before the Lord, when I was pleading with him to, to take this thing away, he said to me then, and what he said to me then holds true even now. My grace is sufficient for you present tense. Right then, right now, in the midst of what you're going through, in the reality of your weakness, my grace is sufficient for you for my power. All surpassing, incomparably great, inexhaustible power that raised Jesus from the dead is made perfect, present tense, right now, in weakness. What he said to me then continues to be true for me now and it continues to be true for all of God's people. When you are weak, it's in that weakness that you are laid open to realize that God's grace is all sufficient then and that his incomparably great power is made perfect then, right there in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I don't know, Paul, a hard time with that. I struggle with that, Paul. Why? I don't understand. Why would you do that, Paul? He, he, he can hear them already saying it when they read it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that, here's why, the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's a beautiful picture right there. And again, we, we have the privilege of technology now. So I don't remember the Greek that I learned in school or the Hebrew, but we have computers that help us read that now and can tell us what it says. And right there, if you were to go look this up in the original language, Paul uses a word there. Then he talks about the power of God resting upon him. He uses a word that's used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in John that talks about where in the Old Testament God came and he pitched his tent amongst his people. And it was there that his glory dwelled in the midst and the presence of his people. And then John said of Jesus the same thing. He came and he tabernacled. He pitched his tent right there in the presence of his people. And Paul just said it's right here in our weakness that the all-surpassing power of God in Christ pitches his tent with his people right there in their weakness. For the sake of Christ then, Paul says in verse 10, 
because of this. I'm content with weaknesses. Well, that, is, that makes every arrogant hair on our neck stand up. But for the sake of Christ, I want to be in the place where I'm most open to experience the all-sufficient nature of His grace and mercy and His power. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. Why? For when I'm weak. It's the whole point. When I'm weak, then I'm actually strong. When I'm weak, by the all-sufficient nature of God's mercy and grace and power, then I'm actually strong. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Paul's saying here that being content with weaknesses means that we don't continue to strive to do the things that God has put into our life in an excellent way. You don't continue to try to do the job that He's given you in an excellent way. You don't continue to try to serve others and love others in an excellent way. You don't, you don't settle for mediocrity and laziness by saying that I'm content in weaknesses. It doesn't mean you ever stop pleading with the Lord to actually heal you of sickness and disease, of healing someone else of sickness and disease. It doesn't mean you ever stop pleading with the Lord to do that. But what it actually means is that you and I have the opportunity and the privilege to learn like Paul that the value of our weakness is simply this— in our weakness, God has a platform to display the all-sufficient nature of His mercy and His grace and His power to a watching world. And so one 18th century pastor, he, he said it this way, perhaps your weakness is some chronic physical affliction that in spite of constant prayer, it reduces you to utter dependence on God and magnifies your inability to accomplish anything apart from His sovereign intervention. You may speak of Christ in this, but the world may vilify your faith as a mere crutch, a psychological prop, the kind of thing that is unworthy of an accomplished, self-made, and self-reliant person. Sounds like you could have written this today, doesn't it? 18th century. Such weakness is an embarrassment to the triumphalist. But such weakness is nothing but a ground for boasting to those who revel only in the exaltation of Christ. Did you hear that? He said, perhaps your weakness is actually a paucity. It's a great word. Paucity, scarceness, lack. Perhaps your weakness is a paucity of natural gifting. They could say things in the 18th century I can't say now. Their world wasn't quite as politically correct as ours. Perhaps your weakness is a paucity of natural gifting, a lack of worldly outward beauty, or some lifelong physiological handicap that limits what you can achieve educationally, financially, or how far you can advance in the competitive world of business. He says to be like Paul, boasting in that which makes us weak is to renounce our self-reliance and worldly sense of victory and to wholly depend on the power of God to accomplish in us and through us whatever will bring Him glory. It means that we joyfully pay the price and gladly embrace the stigma that inevitably comes with a life of godliness and a life of obedience to Christ. Weakness 
nevertheless boasting in weakness. It's not a 21st century cultural value. You know why? Because of all things, it takes humility and honesty. Being honest about who we really are. Being honest about our weakness. Being self-aware of who we really are. But it's precisely in this honesty, it's precisely in this awareness, it's precisely in weakness that we're laid open to experience the all-sufficient nature of God's grace. And it's precisely through that weakness that God has purposed to put himself and to put his power on display to a watching world. Listen, you and I, we, we are a people of resurrection power. God's mighty power, his incomparably great power, his all-sufficient power that raised his son Jesus from the grave, it is alive and at work towards you. It's alive and at work in you. But this life, this power, this power that's at work in us, it's not that we might have a life of, of necessarily worldly admiration. It's power for a life of obedience to the call of Christ. It's incomparably great power that you and I might pick up our cross daily and follow him. To pick up our cross daily and die to ourselves, to die to our pride, to die to our arrogance, to die to our preferences, to die to our desire to be served and rather use the life that he's given us to serve others. It's power to actually endure hardships and difficulties and endure hardships and difficult people with patience and with joy, to share in the suffering for the sake of the gospel that we might share in the sufferings of Christ, that we might live a life of power, but power in weakness. Praise be to God that he's given us his incomparably great power to be able to do it. Because apart from that, we couldn't, but because of him, we can. And as we do, we reflect Christ to a watching world. That's precisely what Paul was saying back in chapter 4. We have this treasure, the treasure of God for us, the, the treasure of God in us, the incomparably great power of God and mercy of God. We have this treasure in us, but it's in jars of clay. It's in weakness. It's in cracks. It's in chips. It's in imperfection. So that, so that the all-surpassing power can be seen by others as being from God and not from us. As we live this resurrection life of power, but we live it in weakness, we actually reveal Christ's transforming power to people. We reveal Christ's cross and his grace and his mercy to people. He suffered in weakness on the cross so that by his death, his life could be made known to us. See, the reality of it is this. You, you actually begin the process of living this power, this life of power in weakness, when in humility you begin to own the fact that you need a Savior in the first place. A life of power in weakness starts by realizing and owning just how weak you really are and that you need God and you need His mercy and you need His power to shine the light of His glory into your heart that you might see his incomparably great power and his incomparably rich grace in the face of his son, Jesus. This morning, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and 
you have tasted of this all-surpassing power and this incomparably great grace that God has given us. We have the opportunity together as a people to make our satisfaction, to make our delight, to make our confidence in Him known. We actually have the opportunity to demonstrate our confidence in His power that gave new life to our sinful hearts this morning, and we do it together as we receive communion. And so in just a minute, the musicians are going to begin to play, and you're going to have an opportunity to consider what God has been saying through Paul to His church this morning, that He's given us His incomparably great power, not for the sake of power, but that we might live a life of power in weakness. And as you're invited forward as a follower of Christ to take communion, I want you to come forward this morning, and I want you, as you do, to remember and to celebrate. When you take that bread and and you hear someone say the body of Christ broken for you, I want you to remember his body as you dip it into that cup and you remember and you celebrate his blood that was poured out, that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. I, I, I want you to remember that in his day and even to this day, nothing looked weaker to a watching world than a man helpless hung up on a cross. But it was in that weakness, it was in that suffering, it was through that death that his life was able to explode in your heart. And this morning, I want you to remember and I want you to celebrate that by his grace and by his mercy, because of his sacrifice and, and through his weakness, you and I now have the privilege of living a life of weakness so that his life and his power could be made known to a watching world through us. That's the privilege you and I have as followers of Christ. It's the call that we have to follow Him. Listen, this morning I want you to know God's grace, it is sufficient for you. Present tense, right now. His power is made perfect in your weakness right now. Because of that, as God's people, may we boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. And as it rests upon us, may it be reflected through us. Let me pray for us this morning and we'll have a chance to respond. Father, thank you for your incomparably all-sufficient, inexhaustible power. Your power that raised your son Jesus from the grave. Your power that has raised our dead hearts to new life. Your power that is transforming us into the image and likeness of your Son. God, I ask this morning that you would do what only your power and your grace towards us can actually do, and you would bring our sinful, arrogant, prideful hearts into a place of submission where we might, like Paul, be able to boast, not just be able to boast, but desire to boast in nothing but that which shows how weak we really are so that as we do that, we're not the ones put on display, but your grace, your mercy, your power is put on display to a watching world. This is what we want. We want you to be made known, for you to be magnified, for you to be reflected and displayed through us. Lord, you've got to bring us to that place of humility. We ask that you would do that here this morning. You would do it in the name of your son, Jesus. You would do it for his glory. You would do it for our joy. Amen.